going to be in Psalm 27 this morning, but would you keep your finger there if you've got a physical Bible and turn to Matthew 28. We're going to read the entirety of Matthew's account of the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous account this is, reminding us of what you did by the power of your Spirit in raising your very own Son from the dead. We think of what was told following the crucifixion that they were to go, these soldiers, and to bound that, bind that tomb as tightly as it could be bound and make sure that a stone was placed over it that no man could move. And I think, according to your word, that you who sit in heaven laughed at such a prospect. For we could scarcely prevent the rising of the sun from happening than the rising of the Son of God from happening. And so we see this angel here who came to visit Mary and the other Mary and seated on the rock, as if to say, it's under God's feet 
This is reality. Death has been defeated. Christ is risen. And because there is an empty tomb, that changes absolutely everything. So we pray that you would draw near to us in this time together as we meditate on Psalm 27 and what it has to do with this great resurrection story. And we pray that you would encourage our hearts and give us the hope that resurrection is intended to give us. Because ultimately all of us stare a day in the face that we will not be able to get out of. And that is our own deaths. We will all die. Our breath will all leave our body. Our hearts will all start, stop beating. Our brains will all stop functioning. And the organs will shut down. And there we hear from this story that the greatest enemy of all of us is not the end of the story. So give us hope this morning as we meditate on what comes after that and what can be true for us if we are in Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen. Okay, so back to Psalm 27 now. Now you may be wondering uh, what Psalm 27 has to do with the story of the resurrection, and I hope that by the end of the sermon you will know what it has to do. I'm not going to tell you right now, though. Because we're going we're gonna to walk through this passage in three, in three steps. This psalm is a psalm of David, the king of Israel, that he wrote during his earthly life. And I want us to, want us to talk about three different things this morning. I'm going to go ahead and give you, uh, give you them ahead of time so you can be anticipating them and following along with me as we walk through Psalm 27. I want you to see three people that had resurrection hope. The hope that the resurrection brings from this psalm. First, David had it. Second, Jesus had it. And three, you can have it. David, Jesus, and us. So how do all three of those people relate to each other? That's the goal of my sermon this morning, is to show how David, Jesus, and us can relate to each other. Because all three can have resurrection hope based upon what the most important of those three did, namely Jesus. So first of all, David had resurrection hope. I want you to see from this psalm, David's confidence, his challenges, but what hope he had and, and what that hope was grounded in. So look at some of the challenges that David is facing. If you're familiar with the psalms, David wrote many of them, and, and you will surely be aware that they were by no means uh, absent of him talking about the various challenges he was facing in his life. And so if you look at chapter or uh, Psalm 27, verse 1, you'll see some of these challenges. I want you to notice the reasons that he has to be afraid. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Well, obviously he's telling himself that because there are very real things to be afraid of. He says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then in verse 2, he begins to talk about some of those reasons he is afraid or should be afraid. Look at verse 2. When evildoers assail me, that is, when people want to take my life from me, verse 3, though an army encamp against me, again, though war break out against me, David is facing serious external challenges. He's got people, which he calls evildoers, adversaries, foes, enemies, who want to kill him. He has armies set to fight him against him. He calls this in verse 5 a day of trouble. I think that's a small understatement. <laughs> if we woke up 
tomorrow morning and found out that there were not just one, but literally hundreds of people that wanted to take our lives from us and were getting ready to send their armies to make it happen, I think we might call that a day of trouble. Well, that's what David calls it. He needs God's protection. His enemies are literally all around him. Look at verse 6. He says, Above my enemies all around me I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. And then verse 11 says, Teach me your way and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Verse 12, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, namely who want to kill me, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. David is facing significant obstacles and challenges. So what does he do? What's he do? Try to get his army together and say, go after him. Find out he's being maligned and have false witnesses being spread about him. And so he says, well, they're going to answer for that. I'm going to kill them or I'm going to try to expose them. No, he doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He cries out to God to save him. Because that's what godly people do when they are facing significant external attacks and challenges. They don't take the problem into their own hands. They put the problem into God's hands. And this is what David does. Notice verses 7 to 7. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. In verse 9 he says, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your anger away, or your servant away in anger. O you who've been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. So he commends himself to God. He offers himself to God. He cries out to God to save him. Now how can he be so sure that God is going to answer him? Notice his confidence here. David's confidence in the character of God. Look at verse 1 again. He says, the Lord is my light. My light. My light. Very personal here. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He's my stronghold of my life. Literally, refuge. The one in whom I hide and seek protection. And in verse 2, he expresses his confidence. It's they, my adversaries, my enemies, my foes. It's they who will stumble and fall. Notice again in verse 3, he says, My heart shall not fear, I will be confident. Verse 5, He will hide me in his shelter, he will conceal me, he will keep me under his tent. Verse 6, My head will be lifted up, I will offer in his tent sacrifices of praise, I will sing, the Lord will take me in. Verse 10, so he concludes in verse 14, Wait, be strong, let your heart take courage. Notice he's speaking God's promises and his presence to himself in the midst of his challenges, as he, even as he cries out for God to save him. And he says in verse 14, I will look upon the Lord in the land of the living. Now, that's an interesting phrase. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What's the land of the living? Well, in the Psalms, this phrase is used to describe life in this world. He's not talking about primarily life in another world, 
but life in this world, the life among people who where people live. In other words, he has confidence that he's not going to die, that these armies aren't going to kill him, that these foes aren't going to have victory over him, that these enemies aren't going to be able to uh, seize him, but that God's going to protect him and God's going to deliver him and God's going to keep him alive. That's his confidence. In fact, if I had time, I would turn us to a couple of passages in the Psalms that use this phrase, land of the living, that clearly refer to our earthly lives. I can go ahead and give them to you if you want to write them down. Psalm 142, verse 5, Psalm 52, verse 5, and Psalm 116, verses 1 through 9. All those texts use this phrase, land of the living, and it's very clear if you read the context that it's talking about our earthly lives, that, that our earthly lives are, David is confident that his earthly life will be sustained. But is that David's only hope? In this psalm, he has confidence that God, in fact, will not let him be killed by his enemies, but that he will be delivered. But is that David's ultimate confidence? No. Look back at Psalm 16. Hold your finger there in Psalm 27. And go back to another psalm David wrote. Psalm 16. And let's read verses 7 through 11 to see where David's ultimate hope was grounded. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Sounds a lot like Psalm 27 and the things that he said there. But let's keep reading. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? Why? Verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me, verse 11, the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David definitely had a hope beyond just this life. That God, in fact, he knew that one day he would, in fact, die. In Psalm 27, he's convinced that it's not this day, but there is coming a day in which he would die, and he had a resurrection hope. He had a hope that God would not abandon his soul to the grave or let his, what he calls himself, God's holy one, see corruption. Now, is this hope groundless? I mean, is this just a religious man who has a confidence in a God and he's crying out to him and praying to him because he's facing all kinds of challenges. I mean, is, is this really just like pie in the sky, hope so, wish so kind of thinking? No, David's hope is not at all groundless. God made promises to David, if you remember. Let's read those promises together. Second Samuel chapter 7 is where we find these promises in the form of a covenant that God makes with his servant David. And he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 4, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house to dwell in? Or would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? 
Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. So see, David is remembering this promise that God made about God cutting off his enemies and protecting him in the form of this covenant. And so he's remembering that even as he prays what we read in Psalm 27. Continuing here in verse 10, or verse 9, middle of verse 9. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be distributed no more, or disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares that you, to you, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you." And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all his vision, Nathan spoke to David. That is an amazing promise. That God comes to this king of Israel and says, I know that I don't live in a house right now. I've lived in a tent for generations now with the people of Israel, but I want you to build me a house. But then he turns the promise kind of on its head and says, I'm going to build you a house, David. I'm going to build you a kingdom that's going to last forever. And David must have heard that and been like, okay, I don't understand that. He must have heard it much like Abraham heard God's promise to him when God came to Abraham in Genesis 15 and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation Look up in the stars, see if you can count them. Such will your descendants and offspring be. And Abraham just said, okay. And God credited it to him for righteousness. Okay. And I'm sure that's what David said. Okay. Okay. Amazing promises. Now, the immediate fulfillment of that promise to David is clearly, if you know the Bible and you've read the story, it's in his son Solomon who takes the kingdom over, and begins to rule, and God does discipline him when Solomon begins to go astray from the Lord. But that promise is a forever promise. That promise includes a kingdom beyond even Solomon's life, and beyond Solomon's children, and beyond their children, and I would argue is still continuing right even down to this day. Because David's son is ultimately not Solomon, it's ultimately Jesus. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, and let's see that together. Who ultimately fulfills this promise to David? Well, Jesus does. Matthew chapter 1, beginning of the New Testament. Very first verse of the first chapter of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of of David, the son of Abraham. And then the rest of Matthew chapter 1, or at least the first half of it, is tracing the gene genealogy of Jesus from Abraham and David. 
to show that he really is the literal, physical fulfillment of that promise to Abraham and to David. So you know who David's son is? You know who Abraham's son is? Jesus Christ is David's son and Abraham's son. So God's promises to David are in fact coming true because there is a king who has come from his line who is presently reigning and ruling forever. And it will always be that way. Luke chapter 24, after Jesus is risen from the dead, he finds two strangers, two men on the road called Emmaus, and he begins interacting with them, and he says the following, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Luke writes, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, which would probably include 2 Samuel chapter 7 and what God said to David at that point and how that's fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 44, then he said to them, here's what Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Did you catch that? Everything written about me, Jesus said to these disciples, in the law of Moses, first five books of the Bible, in the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is saying the Psalms were written, and there's, I'm in there. I'm in there. Don't just read the Psalms as the word of David. Read the Psalms as the words of Jesus. This is point number two. Jesus had resurrection hope. Jesus had resurrection hope. When Paul, in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, and I'll just read them to you, I want you to notice what Paul does when he quotes the Psalms and who he refers to as the author of that psalm is. Okay, so this is Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. For I tell you, Paul writes, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, who's that about? It's about Christ. He's writing that Christ became a servant to the Jewish people to confirm all of God's promises and in order that the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, might come into the kingdom as well and glorify God for his mercy. And then he says, as it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 18, verse 49. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Paul puts the words of the psalmist in Psalm 18 in the mouth of Jesus as though Jesus spoke them. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that interesting? He takes them from a psalm that seems to have no reference at all to Jesus, Psalm 18, and actually makes it a reference to Christ. Now, is that some sort of like interpretive gymnastics? I mean, are, they just, are these guys doing what they want with the Bible? I mean, just finding Jesus wherever they want to find him? No, Jesus taught them to do this. We read that in Luke 24. Paul can say this as an apostle of Christ because Jesus is not only the object of every psalm, he's the subject of every psalm. 
He's the subject of everything in Scripture. It's all about Him. The Old Testament is predictive of Christ and everything about it is leading up to that climactic moment when Christ is born into the world. All the Old Testament doesn't make any sense unless you're thinking of it in a Christ-centered way. Christ is being prophesied and foretold about and eventually he comes onto the scene. And then all the rest of the New Testament is reflecting back on what he did in his life and drawing out implications and applications from it. So, Paul can do that. If Paul can take the, word, the psalmist's words in Psalm 18 and put them in the mouth of Jesus, can we not do the same with Psalm 27? Have you ever thought about that? Put the psalm in the mouth of Jesus last night. Resurrection Eve. Can I read it with you with that in mind? I want you to be thinking Jesus is in the grave. Jesus is in the tomb. It's the night before he's raised from the dead. And listen as he takes these words upon his lips. The Lord is my light and my salvation. I shall not fear. The Lord's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, did he have those? Did he have men who ate his flesh up Yes, my adversaries and foes, it's they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, did he have an army against him? My heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Skip down since we've already read verses 7 through 10. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And the Lord came through. Jesus had confidence that God would raise him from the dead. He had resurrection hope. We read this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. He's telling his disciples this all along, that he's going to be raised from the dead, and they're just like, that sounds crazy. They don't understand it. He keeps reiterating it to them. And in Matthew 16, verse 21, he says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus knew he was going to be raised, right? You read that throughout the gospel accounts, the narratives of the life of Jesus, and you see over and over and over again his confidence that God is not going to leave him in the tomb. That on the third day he's going to rise. He said, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. No one has authority to take my life from me. I have authority to lay it down and take it back up again. 
He knew what he was doing. He had more than anyone who's ever lived an indomitable confidence in the resurrection hope of God. Jesus had resurrection hope. David had resurrection hope. Do you want to face death with that kind of courage? With that sort of confidence? With almost that sort of swagger? There's not, it's not an arrogant, it's not an arrogant swagger. It's a swagger that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, mocking death. Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and Christ died for sin. The power of death is the law, and Christ fulfilled the law. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want that sort of confidence, you can get it. But it's only going to come through union with this resurrected man. And so let's look finally, point number three, you can have resurrection hope. We can all have resurrection hope. Most of us in this room already possess resurrection hope by virtue of what I'm going to talk about this morning. But if you don't have it, you can get it this morning. and It'll change your eternal destiny. Think about it. As the world thinks, how ironic that Easter occurs on April Fool's Day. And if the Resurrection of Christ is not a reality. According to 1 Corinthians 15, we're of all people most to be foolish. Treated as pitiable. But on this day, if you are not yet in Christ, you can be in Christ. And contrary to it being April Fool's Day, you could look back with great mocking and say, how ironic, how wonderfully, blessedly ironic that in, on April Fool's Day 2018, I was brought to true wisdom. I was brought to resurrection life in which one day before the entire universe, the truthfulness and the claims of Jesus will be publicly vindicated and I will be there with him in his return. So you can have resurrection hope. So let me ask you some questions here. Do you face challenges? Surely you do. I mean, you might not be facing the challenges that, that David faced here in Psalm 27 or that Jesus faced on the cross, the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the three days before, the, the days before the resurrection. Surely those are challenging. But no, you have enemies. You have adversaries. You have foes. And they're an unholy trinity. And they're known as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three of them are conspired to keep you out of resurrection life. Because if the world can keep you seduced and entertained and distracted and the flesh can feed your pleasures for the right now and delay your pleasures for the 10,000 years from now and can get you to glut yourself on the world so that you have no taste for the things of God, no appetite for what is bread of life, then the devil can keep you ensnared and you will have no interest whatsoever because everybody goes to heaven, right, in our culture. All you got to do is die. Well, if that's true, then Jesus coming, living, suffering, dying, and rising was worthless. Do you think that salvation by death narrative 
have you ever thought about it? It spits upon Jesus Christ. It spits upon his worth, his value, what he did. And it says, I don't need Jesus. All I need is to expire. Because it's just so backwards. It shows no awareness of sin, no awareness of who God is, no awareness of the worth and dignity of Christ. And everything about our value and worth and dignity by the fact that we're breathing air on God's earth. Living a life of rebellion to him and indifference to him. But here's the good news. This is why Christ came. To rescue us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. He conquers the world. He subdues our flesh. He kills and disarms the devil. And our cry can then be the same cry as we see in Psalm 27, the same cry that we no doubt heard Jesus say, Lord, save me. As Jesus said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit and assured the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise because he knew where he was going. And you can too. So how do we get there? What's the connection? How do we connect David Jesus and us. Well, one more passage before we wrap up. Tom, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. So just just before we read the passage, just to remind you where we've been. So we've seen that David had an absolute confidence or a resurrection hope based upon God's promise to him that he would have a kingdom forever. And we know that kingdom took on its eventual full manifestation in the coming of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the eternal king. And now we can get into that kingdom, that eternal everlasting kingdom, which is presently reigning in an invisible realm and will one day rule in a very visible realm. By the way, kingdom of God is also visible. Take a look around. Okay? Churches are embassies of the kingdom. Every true gospel church is a little microcosm of what's going to happen when the kingdom becomes entirely visible and the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So we're a part of, this is kingdom right here. Evidence of kingdom life. It's wonderful. And so we get in union with that king and his resurrection life becomes our resurrection life. And we see that here in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 15. Let's read those verses together. If you confess with your mouth, Paul says, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, see how central the resurrection is to all this? You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So let's take these 
verses in reverse order. See how this happens. See how we can have resurrection hope. God, first step, verse 15, God sends preachers. Oh, how grateful I am that at 15 years old, non-Christian home, no exposure to the gospel, no idea who Jesus was, grandfather dies, January of 96, a preacher shows up in my life. A preacher. Someone who loves Jesus and wants me to know him. God did that. Mark Redfern didn't do that. I didn't give a rip about Jesus. Didn't know who he was. And he shows up and he preaches the gospel at my grandfather's funeral. And I'm blown away. Why didn't anybody tell me this? This is everything. So God sends preachers. He's given me to you this morning. Never heard this. You can hear it now. Then verse 14. Preachers preach good news. They don't tell you this is the 10 steps you need to do to be a better person. This is what you've got to do in order to merit heaven. This is what you have to do in order to get your life right so God will accept you. That's not good news. That's good advice. Heaven and earth exist between a cross, not a stepladder. You don't climb up to it. God comes down to you. And that's good news. Because in the life and death of Jesus Christ, God has done everything we need to be resurrected from the dead. And it has absolutely nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with the quality of our life. Or how good of a mom or dad we've been. Or friend we've been. Or how non-existent our criminal record is. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's good news of great joy in the life and death and resurrection of Christ for us. Then, what's the next step? God sends preachers. Preachers preach good news. People hear. Verse 14. God, hear it. Then, verse 14, people believe. And then, the response to hearing and believing is, verse 14 and 13, 13 and 14, to call Upon the name of the Lord. You know what that means? Lord, save me. Raise me from the dead. Let your life count for my life. Forgive my sin. Reconcile me to God. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. And then, what happens as a result of that? Because it doesn't stop there. Notice verses 9 through 11 again. So, they confess with their mouth. They believe in their heart. And they are justified, that is, counted righteous. And then they're saved. And then verse 11 says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So I want to conclude with this this morning. What are some of the riches we get? from calling on the name of the Lord. So God has sent preachers. They preach good news. We hear, we believe, we call. And what are some of those riches that fall on us? I want to conclude with 10 riches, and they'll be very quick. 
10 riches, and these come from a a compilation article that John Piper put together and I read just a few days ago. So this is some 10 riches that we get. First of all, a Savior who can never die again. Romans 6, verse 9, For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. (laughs) Praise God. We have a Savior who can never die. So that means if we're in union with Him, He's not dying anymore. And so when we die, we will live. Because we will meet a living Savior, not a dead one. Number two, repentance. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, Acts 5.31, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance. If you want to, if, if you find yourself sorrowful over your sins and turning from them to embrace Jesus, that is a gift from the resurrected Christ to you. The only reason you're able to do that is because he, raised you, he was raised from the dead. And he, he's raised from the dead now to give repentance. Repentance is not a work we manufacture. It's a gift we receive. If we find any sorrow for sin in our hearts at all, Jesus gave it to us. See how much we need him? We don't just need him because out there he, he died and, and objectively we need to be reconciled to God. But we don't even want it subjectively. We have to be acted upon by the one who was raised from the dead in order to have an interest in his resurrection. But the good news is, is that if we have that interest, we have been acted upon. We are, we have been given the gift of repentance. Number three, I said I'd be fast and now I'm preaching many sermons on every one of these. All right, new birth. Number three, by his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ bought our new birth. It caused us to be born again. No resurrection, no new birth. Verse number four, forgiveness of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But guess what? If he has been raised, your faith is not futile and you are not in your sins. You are forgiven of all of your sin. Number five, the Holy Spirit Acts chapter 2, verse 32 and 33, this God, Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, which you see and hear. Pentecost was a result of the resurrection. No resurrection, no pouring out of the Spirit. The Spirit is released by virtue of the resurrection of Christ. Number six, no condemnation. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn if Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God? So Paul grounds his argument for our no condemnation, not just in the fact that Christ died, but in the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. Number seven, the Lord's personal fellowship and protection. We read this earlier in Matthew 28. I am with you always to the end of the age. We have his personal fellowship and protection all of our lives. Number eight, proof of coming judgment. Acts 17, 31. God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this day, he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Newsflash. Judgment is coming. If you don't think so, just go find Jesus somewhere. If you can find his body or find evidence that he wasn't raised, dismiss everything that I've said this morning. 
but no one has been able to ever, I mean, that's all you got to do. Just produce some evidence. And this whole Christian movement for two millennia is shut down and no one was able to do it. You know why? Because he wasn't there. And therefore, he wasn't there. That is an immense comfort for us as believers, and it's immensely terrifying as an unbeliever. Because I've got to meet a man who is not dead, who reigns over me, and is going to call me to account for my life. But he offers himself now as a Savior who will wipe clean my slate, bring me into his family. But he has fixed the day that if we refuse that, then he is given assurance that that will happen by being raised from the dead and he will judge the world in righteousness number nine salvation from the future wrath of god first thessalonians 1:10. we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come see if you want to be delivered from the wrath to come you got to be among that crowd that's waiting waiting when we when it happens too late but if you will wait with us for him you will wait for him, then Jesus will deliver us from the wrath to come. And then finally, number 10, our own resurrection from the dead. 2 Corinthians 4, 14 and Romans 6. We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's where it ends. The great, the great news of Christ, the Christian faith is that our life, when it ends, doesn't end. It's really just beginning. And so may you have that resurrection hope. Because if you have that hope, it doesn't matter what this life throws against you. What death can take now or later, what anything that life can give now, it pales in comparison. There's no U-Hauls behind hearses. We're not taking it with us. Make sure that your hope is rooted firmly in the resurrected man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to meditate on the resurrection and its value and the benefits that come to us by virtue of it. We confess that we are altogether unworthy of such a gracious act from you to redeem us, to reconcile us, to save us, to resurrect us. The fact that right now, those of us who are believers, we are already raised. It's an, and in a sense, yes we, yes, we will be raised, but we are already raised. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Our resurrection is guaranteed because we already, in a sense, possess it right now. We possess it by being in union with our resurrected Savior. So help us to celebrate now, to sing and worship you in response to this great news of resurrected hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Sing verse